The sermon text this morning is from Acts 4, verses 1 through 22. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Oh, we've been studying this record of the Acts of the Apostles, Acts for short. Uh, Acts was written by Luke, who was an, an academic. He was a, a researcher, a historian. He loved books, parchments. Uh, he was actually a physician as well. And he was an eyewitness to many of these events that he records because uh, he was a fellow missionary with Paul, which we read about in the, the back half of this book. 
And actually, Paul, in his first letter to Timothy, refers to Luke's writing as scripture, on par with the Old Testament. And so, the Gospel of Luke, as well as the Acts of the Apostles, these two documents written by Luke, uh, we believe to be scripture, breathed out by God. Uh, Yes, researched and and written by Luke, some of it actually experienced by him, Uh, all of it historically reliable, as confirmed by many other historical sources, Uh, Yet, not only written by Luke, uh, but also written by God himself. These are God's words to us. The Holy Spirit is speaking to us through these words, which is why we take the time to preach these passages and meditate on them together. Uh, What we see the Apostle Peter doing in the early chapters of Acts is uh, preaching that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament hopes for a Messiah. He's preaching the identity of Jesus on the basis of the scriptures. And so we're trying to emulate Peter's example by preaching about who Jesus is on the basis of these scriptures that he has given to us. So that's what we do every Sunday morning, and that's what we are doing uh, now. So in this record, uh, Luke, rec- Luke has, has told us that uh, the main movement he has observed among the apostles is, uh, and he, he puts it on the words of Jesus in chapter 1, as Jesus said it to the disciples, and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And then that statement from Jesus sort of sets the agenda for the disciples, those first followers of Jesus who came to be called apostles, which means sent ones. So uh, in Acts, these 12 men who, uh, you know, in the, in the Gospels, they're, they're called disciples, that is followers, and they're, they're viewed primarily as followers of Jesus. But here in Acts, they are called apostles or sent ones. And they are sent specifically to be witnesses of Jesus, to go around saying, this is who Jesus is. This is what Jesus has done. And this is how you should respond uh, to that news. And so over the past several weeks, as we've looked at the first several chapters of Acts, Um, you see this happening. A small group, uh, 11 men, because they've lost Judas, they're going to add one, but you see this this small group uh, about the size of one of our care groups gathered together with a a little bit larger group. So it says 120 people total there in in Jerusalem, which would be about the size of our uh, gathering here this morning. And they're gathered, and and that's it. That's the Christian movement at that point, a very uh, small gathering. But exactly what Jesus had said would happen, happened. Uh, The Holy Spirit's power came upon them just as he had said, and they became witnesses, as he had said, first right there in Jerusalem. And thousands were joining them immediately. Uh, They're hanging out there in the city, sort of gaining momentum. And uh, it's the the fastest growing church in the world at this point. True, in part, because it's the only church in the world at this point. But they are growing uh, rapidly. And it's not just because of Peter's eloquence, uh, but it's because of the profound events that Peter is testifying to. He's speaking of the divine nature of Jesus, his death and his resurrection, and that he was exalted to the right hand of God, and that they were witnesses, eyewitnesses to these things. 
And then that, that first gathering of Holy Spirit-filled, baptized believers in Jesus uh, begin worshiping together, learning the apostles' teaching, sharing the Lord's Supper together, as we'll do this morning, and giving of themselves, sacrificing of their own uh, goods to share with those who are in need among them. And, and through these kind of uh, compelling internal dynamics of their community, as well as through the powerful preaching of the apostles, Uh, Luke records, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. That's the end of Acts 2 that we looked at last week. And now in the fourth chapter of Luke's record of things, we get the first hint of opposition. Uh, Things had been going really well for this group. Thousands had been joining them. Acts 2 says they had favor among all the people. Uh, But in Acts 4, we get the first hint of opposition. It's not as severe as it eventually would be, uh, but we see this sort of gathering storm coming into view. And very broadly, what we see at the beginning is that the 12 apostles uh, and those who are following them maintain a posture of bold and effective witness to Jesus despite this sort of mounting criticism, opposition, and persecution. So we'll look at this chapter first at Peter's proclamation, uh, followed uh, second by the persecution that they experienced. Those are the two big dynamics going on in this passage, proclamation and persecution. So first, uh, proclamation. Uh, In the previous chapter, chapter 3 that we've skipped over, uh, Luke tells us that Peter and John were going to the temple at the hour of prayer. They were going to the temple to pray, and as they're on their way there, a lame beggar stops them and asks them for money. And Peter stares at him. It's like this awkward gaze, the word that Luke uses. He just stares at him. And he says, silver and gold have I none. But such as I have, give I you. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And that's exactly what happens. This lame man stands up and walks, and people are amazed. And he doesn't just stand up. He actually begins jumping around and praising God, which draws a crowd. And so Peter takes this as an opportunity uh, to rehearse his message and tell them about Jesus. He does this somewhat bluntly in chapter 3, verse 15. You see, he tells the crowd, you all killed the author of life, whom God then raised from the dead, and to this we are witnesses. And then in verse 19 of chapter 3, he tells them what they should do about this. He says, repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, and that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. You see what Peter is doing there? Because this is evangelism. This is proclamation of the gospel. So pay careful attention to what he's doing here. Uh, He is witnessing to historical events. He says Jesus is the author of life. He's one with God, the creator God who, who creates life and gives life. He's the author of life and he was crucified on account of your sins. Uh, You killed him. And on the third day, he was raised from the dead by God. And then he says, we are witnesses to these historical events. We saw this happen with our own two eyes. We experienced Jesus. Why else would Peter jeopardize his life to go around spreading this message, but that he had seen a man crucified, buried, and then a few days later, he spoke with that man. You know, what would you do if this happened to you? You saw a man executed, you watched him buried, and a few days later he comes back and has a conversation with you? You Would you go home and shut the door and try to forget about it? 
No, you'd, you'd probably take a selfie with the guy and post it on social media and it would go viral and then you'd be continually asked to verify your claim, give evidence for it, prove it. And that's exactly what Peter is doing here. He is an eyewitness to these events and he is verifying that they have happened. He's witnessing to historical events. But then Peter says more. He doesn't just witness to the historical events. He also presses an offer on these people. He says, repent and turn back that your sins may be blotted out and that times of refreshing may come. He says those historical events are indicating that sins against God can be forgiven. They can be blotted out. They also indicate, those events indicate, that life can come to you. The author of life can bring times of refreshing to you. Uh, Life both now and forevermore. Sins can be blotted out. New life can be yours. And so this is instructive to us. His his proclamation was with this sort of two-step movement. Witnessing to historical events and then pressing home the offer, the, the implication of those events. And this is what good gospel proclamation always looks like. So that's the background, actually, to our story in chapter 4. Um, so that story of Peter healing the lame beggar and then preaching to the crowd that gathers, that's background to um, chapter 4, uh, where we read in verse 1, as they were speaking to the people, as Peter and John were speaking to that gathered crowd, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. Uh, But many of those who had already heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. So Luke records the number of men came to about 5,000. He's reporting households, uh, like how in our church there's about 125 families, but there's 350 people that attend on Sunday mornings. The ratio may have been similar, maybe slightly more per household. Uh, But if there are thousands in Acts 2, thousands more in Acts 4, you know, with the households, this may be 20,000 people that are joining the apostles and in, in responding to their early message. Uh, now, historians estimate that the first century population of Jerusalem would have been somewhere between 40,000 and 80,000 people. So it's a big range, but regardless, this is a massive percentage of the population that are believing the apostles' preaching. What is the message that all of these people are responding to and finding so compelling? Well, Peter and John were proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. That's the sort of one phrase summary of their message that you see there in uh, verse 2. But we see Peter then actually sort of re-preach the the cliff notes of his previous sermons to the council uh, beginning in verse 8 of chapter 4. Tom said a couple weeks ago that Peter's first sermon in Acts 2 uh, was just three minutes long. Uh, It's probably Luke's summary of that sermon, but it's it's brief. And then in Acts uh, 3, we get Peter's second sermon, which is a minute and a half long, so we're getting shorter. And now here in Acts 4, it's uh, this just mini sermon before the council, and it takes about 30 seconds to read. It's just... Three sentences, but it's full of the Holy Spirit. And one of the things that we see about this little sermon is that it is, uh, 
It's a defense. It's his response to the council's questions. They asked him, by what power or by what name did you do this? And now he's responding to that question. So Peter hadn't written this script in advance. He probably hadn't prepared for this specific sermon the way that I have uh, prepared to teach this morning. He's responding spontaneously when they ask him, in whose name did you heal this man? In whose name did you save him? And Peter says, we healed him in the only name by which a person can be healed or saved. And then we get really the highlight of this three-sentence sermon in the declaration of verse 12. Peter says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This is one of the most well-known statements from the book of Acts, and it's really the core of Peter's proclamation here. Uh, This is an exclusive claim about salvation in Jesus alone, and it's really a shocking thing to say in any culture. Uh, Now, Peter was um, preaching, uh, doing ministry in the tension of two cultures. On the one hand, he was in the midst of the ardently religious monotheistic culture, the, the nation of Israel, Uh, But on the other hand, the nation of Israel existed as a sort of subculture within the loosely um, pagan, polytheistic uh, Roman Empire. And so Peter's declaration about salvation through Christ alone is, is really equally subversive to both of these cultural groups. Peter's claim about Jesus being the only way to salvation was directed, first of all, as a response to Israel's religious leaders. Um, Now, these are the men who were responsible for showing Israel the way to salvation. Uh, They had come to believe, though, that salvation could be gained through keeping the Old Testament laws uh, and, and the traditions that they added to those laws. In other words, each person would earn his or her own salvation through maintaining the precepts of the law. Each person then was saved on their own merit, in his own name. But Peter says, there is no other name. There is salvation in no one else. Meaning that salvation in your own name, on your own merit, does not work. And so Peter's declaration uh, assaults Israel's established religious system and really all self-salvation projects. Uh, But to say that there is no other name under heaven by which a person must be saved uh, was also a massive assault assault against the the polytheism, the the religious pluralism of the Roman Empire as well. So the Roman Empire prized uh, tolerance in all things religious. As a conglomeration of many ethnicities and cultures that were brought into the empire over time, it was politically prudent for Rome to exercise uh, a peaceful sort of coexistence among all the religions. And so the core religious sensibility of Rome was pluralistic. Uh, You might think of the Pantheon in Rome, this temple constructed in the first century that was a temple for uh, many gods all at once. And so Peter here with his claim, he's not adding a god to the Pantheon, uh, but he's really subverting the fundamental order of the Roman Empire altogether. What was politically essential for holding Rome together was permitting diversity of gods and yet demanding unity when it came to paying homage to the emperor. And current Western secularism is actually a a close sort of cognate or parallel to the Roman pluralism. We are in a pluralistic culture that wants to affirm all faiths or no faith. 
And yet that, that pluralism only goes so far. Uh, it's ironically uh, intolerant at the point of exclusive claims. It excludes exclusivity. Uh, so a famous comparative religion scholar, Wilfred Cantwell Smith, said, except at the cost of insensitivity or delinquency, it is morally not possible to go out into the world and say to devout, intelligent fellow human beings, we believe that we know God and we are right. You believe that you know God and you are totally wrong. He says, if you tell someone they are totally wrong in their religious beliefs, you are morally insensitive and delinquent. Uh, You're a bad citizen if you fail the test of, of tolerance. But this, this modern secular viewpoint is exactly how Rome viewed first century Christians. Uh, so one historian, Bruce Shelley, said, to the Roman, uh, the Christians seemed utterly intolerant and insanely stubborn. Uh, worse, he was a self-confessed disloyal citizen. So the objection to Christianity then as now is that it's, it's arrogant to make an exclusive truth claim. There's this parable that's often told to affirm pluralism. Maybe you've heard the the parable of the six blind men and the elephant. Uh, One of the blind men touches the side of the elephant and says, an elephant is smooth like a wall. Another one of the blind men touches the elephant's uh, leg and says, an elephant is tall like a tree. Another one grabs uh, the trunk and says, "It's, it's round and squirmy like a snake. Another one touches the spear and says, an elephant is sharp. Uh, the, the, the tusk, and says an elephant is sharp like a, a spear, and so on. And this, this story about the, the argument of the blind men, about what an elephant is, what it's like, is told from the perspective of a, an Indian raja, like a king, who observes this argument among the blind men and says to them, an elephant is a big animal, and you're all correct in your partial observations. And so the moral of the story is that all religions can describe parts of the truth, but no religion should uh, claim to have a comprehensive vision of truth. But the story itself backfires with a certain arrogance, doesn't it? Uh, Because it's told from the perspective of someone who's not blind. You know, how, how could you know that each blind man is seeing only parts of the elephant, unless you yourself had this sort of privileged position of seeing the whole elephant, Or as Leslie Newbigin said, it's the immensely arrogant claim of one who sees the full truth which all the world's religions are only groping after. Daniel Harmon told me this story about a uh, a professional engineer who joined staff with CREW, the campus ministry, and uh, at at a meeting of engineers, they were um, introducing themselves, and and he said that he was a campus minister. And one of the other engineers, one at the end of the table, uh, expressed shock and horror at this and said, I, I can't believe that. How dare you go around college campuses telling people that what they believe is wrong? And he, he looked at her calmly and said, are you telling me that I'm wrong? You see, pluralism is not as tolerant as it pretends to be. Uh, so if, you, if you're skeptical about Christianity because you think it's arrogant, remember everyone's claims about truth and morality are exclusive at some points, including yours. And so the, the best thing to do for, for an individual, for you, uh, for a society, really the proper thing to do is, is not to affirm that all faiths are equally true or just mutually explanatory. Um, but rather to freely allow all people to humbly bring their personal faith commitments to the table. 
which is really what evangelism is. Evangelism is not an arrogant attack on another person's beliefs. Evangelism is sim- simply witnessing to your personal faith commitments, saying something like, I've experienced new life in Jesus, and it's, it's an amazing thing. You should experience this too. Tom said a couple weeks ago that evangelism often feels like a conversation between two awkward people. And that's often true, but here's another way of thinking about evangelism. Evangelism is witnessing to your personal faith commitments. And we should have these kind of face-to-face conversations with people uh, where you say, Jesus has changed my life. Um, And you have the kind of life that backs that up. So I was talking to a woman a couple months ago who knows a, a number of families in our congregation sort of from a, from a distance. And she said, you know, it's, it's amazing how the families, how you, your church is um, uh, really self-sacrificing for one another's good and, and uh, forgiving at, you know, various points that she had observed. And uh, I, I said to her, you know, that, that's, uh, I'm glad to hear that you've observed that. It would be a sad contradiction, you know, if, if we weren't like that. We've all staked our lives on someone who uh, gave his life so that we could be forgiven. Wouldn't it be a sad contradiction if that thing weren't being observed and experienced by people outside of our congregation? And that's the sort of witnessing to personal faith commitments that I'm talking about, where we have the kind of lives with individually and as a congregation that sort of verify the reality of the claim that we're making about Jesus, the reality of Jesus, the new life that he brings. Of course, that kind of witness could be shared on, on Facebook or other digital platforms, but, but we want to promote face-to-face witnessing where you are saying to people you know, look, this is good, and you have the kind of life, a compelling life that backs it up because it's hard to witness to something that you've never experienced. You wouldn't even trust a Google review of someone who had never actually been to the restaurant, would you? How much less would you trust the religious claims of someone who seems to have never experienced Jesus? You look at verse 13 here in chapter 4, and it says of the council uh, of religious leaders, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Evangelism isn't, first of all, about logic or arguments or uh, apologetics. You know, Peter's not claiming to outsmart them. Evangelism is, is, first of all, about someone who has experienced Jesus, witnessing to the reality of what they have experienced, witnessing to your personal faith commitments. I want you to notice something else about what Peter does here. Peter makes this exclusive truth claim on the basic, uh, basis of historical realities that he's experienced, Uh, But he offers this really as an invitation, uh, first to the crowds, uh, and then here in these verses to the council that's questioning him. I love how Tim Keller said this. uh, Christianity is an exclusive claim, but it is the most inclusive, exclusive claim there is, because it wants you to exclusively believe in this man who died uh, for his enemies. It's the most inclusive, exclusive claim there is. You know, Christianity in the first century was immediately marked out as a multi-ethnic movement. In fact, that's one of the things that made it so destabilizing to uh, the Roman Empire. It couldn't stay contained uh, within one region or ethnicity. 
not only Jews, but also Romans were converting. And women and children were valued and protected and included in Christianity in a way they couldn't find in other places. Because the Roman Empire generally preyed on women and children. The Me Too movement could never have happened in the Roman Empire. Women and children had no rights and very few protections. But Christianity comes along and gives equal value and dignity to every human. So, yes, there are hard lines on Christian doctrine, uh, but there are no lines on Christian demographics. It's exhaustively inclusive. And so Peter's declaration here is exclusive. Salvation is only through Jesus, but it's framed as an invitation. If you are to be saved from God's just wrath against human sin— Here is the way. There is no other way. You should take this way. Notice two key things about what Peter says here. First, his name has been given. A name has been given among men. That name, of course, is Jesus, the name in which this miracle was uh, performed. Remember, they, they were asking him, in whose name did you heal this man? And he says, in the name of Jesus, the name that has been given. Uh, Peter responds, this is the name that brings salvation. Jesus means the, the Lord saves, and that name has been given. That name stands as, as a personal invitation to you uh, to consider your need of salvation, which God gives as a free gift to those who will but receive it. This name has been given. And then secondly, uh, we must be saved. He says, there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. His name is perfectly suited to our situation. We are in need of being saved, and his name meets that need. Peter doesn't say that we can be saved as if it depends on our achievements. He doesn't say that we might be saved as if it's an uncertainty. He says that we must be saved because it's a moral obligation of every human being uh, to seek salvation in the name of Jesus. This is the message that Peter proclaims, and he proclaims it as an invitation to them, and it stands as an invitation to us to hope in Jesus Christ. And this is the message that we should endeavor to proclaim, inviting others uh, to be saved by the name of Jesus. Charles Spurgeon said, If sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they will perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees and let not one go there unwarned and unprayed for. May we be about the business of warning and praying for them, being bold and effective witnesses to the reality of new life in Jesus as we see the apostles doing here. If the apostles are marked by bold witness, we see this almost immediately sparked uh, persecution. This is the second big dynamic that we see in this passage, uh, persecution. And it's at first from the established religion that they are opposed. So the early followers of Christ were not first persecuted by the pagan Roman state, uh, but rather by their own Jewish people. So you see back in verse 1, Luke records uh, as they were speaking that the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, the religious leaders uh, of Israel. He says they were greatly annoyed because the apostles were teaching the people. So the persecution at first is that they are considered an irritation. They are greatly annoying. 
to be considered an irritant by the influential elements of society is sort of the, the beginning of persecution. If persecution occurs sort of along a, a spectrum, uh, then the early phase is this, being seen as annoying and, and irritant. You know, it would, it would be nice if you weren't part of our society. Uh, but then that, that annoyance uh, quickly leads to them being imprisoned overnight. Uh, they are publicly questioned there in verse 7. And then uh, they are prohibited from speaking anymore in the name of Jesus there in verse 18. They're given an ultimatum. The apostles say, we, we have to continue speaking of Jesus. And so they are further threatened there in verse 21. And then in chapter 5, uh, the religious leaders haul them back in again after they've been preaching and make good on those threats and actually do uh, beat them, flog them. And eventually in the book of Acts and beyond, uh, you know, we, we learn that many of the apostles were actually handed over to the Roman Empire for imprisonment and many of them would be executed. So you see this sort of building trajectory to the persecution, beginning with annoyance, ending for many in, um, in execution. But Peter's response to the religious leaders at this point, these early, this early phase, gives us an important principle for Christian witness. Uh, Peter says there in verse 19 of chapter 4, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Uh, they would state this same idea more sharply in the next chapter when they're hauled before the council again. Um, in chapter 5, verse 29, the apostles say, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. We are witnesses to these things. We cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And sometimes obeying uh, Christ's command to go and make disciples of the nations, uh, obeying the Great Commission, will require disturbing the peace and disobeying the government. Uh, you know, when Americans refer to illegals, it's often a pejorative reference to people who have come to the United States illegally, even though they are often hardworking and law-abiding once they're here. But many gospel workers among unreached people groups, including two of the families that we support as a church, are or will be illegals as well. They go to their countries legally but they will not be law-abiding once they're there. In fact, they are going intentionally to break the law. On what power can they act subversively to the power of sovereign states? On what basis can we as a church support and participate in that subversion with them? It's on this basis. We cannot do anything but speak of what we have seen and heard. You know, being witnesses to the risen Christ the one who died and was raised and exalted to the right hand of God. Uh, being witnesses to those historical events is more important than personal safety, and it's more important than obedience to human governments who would proscribe such activity. And it's because of their insistence on obeying God rather than men that these apostles and many early Christians would suffer persecution in those days. Uh, and yet, that persecution actually resulted in numerical growth and geographical spread of the church. 
And that's the cycle that we see over and over again in the book of Acts. Witness, persecution, and growth. Witness, persecution, and growth. And so if you turn over to um, Acts chapter 8, you'll, you, see this, you see this very thing happening. Uh, you might remember a couple weeks ago it was pointed out that um, Christians in China are coming under increasing, increasing scrutiny and threat from the government. That, that's a historically naive policy for the Chinese government because state-sponsored persecution, historically speaking, is one of the surest ways to guarantee the spread of Christianity. Uh, and that goes all the way back to these chapters in Acts. So in Acts 8, verse 1, you know, things are sort of progressing in Jerusalem. More people are converting to Christianity, and so the church has seen uh, need to elect deacons who will uh, coordinate care for widows and needy uh, amongst them. And one of those early deacons was named Stephen, and Stephen uh, was stoned on account of his witness to Jesus, and thus becoming the, the, the first Christian martyr among these, these followers. And uh, we read that story in chapters 6 and 7. And then here, following that story in Acts 8.1, we read uh, that Paul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So this was a scattering of lay people, not the apostles. They're staying put, but the lay people, so to speak, are scattered abroad through uh, Judea and Samaria. And now look at verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. So Persecution is an effective state strategy, but it's effective not for eliminating the church, but for scattering it all over the place. Uh, So we can send gospel workers uh, to hard places all around the world with confidence that God will empower them to keep speaking, keep witnessing uh, to the reality of Jesus, even in the midst of threats and even when suffering actually comes. And and as a matter of fact, it may be those very occasions uh, that God sovereignly uses to propel his gospel forward. Consider how God worked in this passage in in chapter 4. Peter and John were preaching the word. Uh, They were arrested and put in custody. But verse 4 says, many of those who had the ideas already heard the word believed. And the number of men came to about 5,000. Take that, Sadducees. You know, you can arrest us and put us in prison. 5,000 will come to Christ. You know, of course, this doesn't mean that Christians should seek out persecution as a, a growth strategy. Uh, in fact, uh, a few decades after uh, these events, Paul writes a letter to Timothy, and he says that whenever Christians gather, they should pray. This is First Timothy uh, chapter 2. He says, when you gather, pray for leaders and all those who are in authority, specifically that they would ordain uh, laws and policies that would allow for the peaceful and free promulgation of the gospel, uh, that we may lead quiet and dignified lives, uh, godly in every way. For God desires all men to come to a knowledge of the truth. It kind of tracked Paul's flow of thought there, and the idea is that we should be praying for those who are in high positions, Uh, that they would create societies where the gospel can go forward 
unhindered. You know, this is why we include in our corporate prayers uh, unreached people groups. And we pray that the governments where those unreached people groups are would uh, institute just laws that allow for the free and peaceful spread of the gospel. Uh, When Paul wrote to uh, churches that were supporting him, he asked uh, the Thessalonians that they would pray that the gospel would speed ahead without hindrance. And he asked the Colossians to pray that he would have open doors to speak of Christ freely. Uh, uh, Governments should not oppress religion. Christians all around the world should pray for freedom to speak of Jesus without consequence. And this should lead us to consider what we're doing with our freedoms. You know, Christians in America rightfully support uh, religious freedom. But Paul seems to envision religious freedom primarily as a benefit for evangelism. The, the, the primary benefit of religious freedom is that we are free to be witnesses of Jesus in all the places that he has put us. Are you actively taking advantage of the freedom we have here to witness to Jesus, to urge others to believe in him, this name that has been given for salvation? If the U.S. government instituted a no proselytizing policy, would that affect your life at all? Would that have any consequence for you? But, you know, here in Acts 4, we see the apostles preaching the gospel, Uh, but in Acts 8, those verses we just read, everyone except the apostles was scattered about preaching the word. So, you know, we as a congregation will be scattered about, not because of persecution and suffering, but just in the natural course of things. God has ordained our places and times. He's sovereignly put us in the places that we'll go this week. Uh, Will we go about, like these did, uh, scattered about, preaching the word, uh, following the example of these apostles who are witnessing. They've, they've experienced Jesus. They've been with him. They have lives that back up their testimony. They are witnessing these historical events and then urging upon others uh, to believe in him, inviting others to experience Jesus as they have. I pray that, that we will be people uh, who have been deeply affected by Jesus, who are grateful to him for the salvation that we've received through him. And out of that gratitude, are not, that, that we would not fail to, to speak of him. Let's pray together that we would be these kind of people walking in response to what God has, has given us in the example of the apostles here. Before we share in the Lord's Supper, let's ask God that we would um, faithfully respond to this passage.